Now the great crowd accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down fast and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, where the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that Jesus does not withhold from us the truth. That he would even forcefully warn us ahead of time of the cost of what it is to come after him, to pick up our own crosses and be his disciples. This morning, would you help each of us to count that cost ourselves so that we might be useful servants of our Lord. By his grace, would we be willing to surrender all and to be used for him in his kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. In 1897, a Swedish man by the name of S.A. Andre had a very ambitious idea. He would be the man to lead a team for the first time to travel to the North Pole. Uh, but this man with a plan had more than just a first on his mind. He also wanted to do it in style. He would do it in a way no one had dreamed up, being carried by a balloon. Uh, you see, he was an inventor, and he thought that uh, something like a hot air balloon, filled with gas, though, uh, would be the best way to make it across the treacherous ice all the way to the North Pole. So he invented a new type of balloon filled with something like helium, as well as a system to be able to steer his aircraft using ropes that would drag along the ground to slow himself down or turn back and forth. It all sounded good in theory. What could go wrong? Well, it turns out a lot could go wrong. Uh, when the engineers he was working with started warning him that his balloon had not been properly tested, he waved off their concerns. 
When others told him that his dragging ropes idea was foolhardy, would definitely hit a snag, he dismissed those concerns as well. And when his crew members said that maybe we're not bringing heavy enough coats and enough blankets and enough food, he said that they were all just worrying too much. So they left from tip of Norway, heading north, and they made it 41 hours before that balloon failed. And in shame, he and his team had to walk back to civilization, having completely failed in their task and nearly losing their lives in the process. Uh, All that S.A. Andre accomplished is giving us a tale of the perils of not counting the cost before you set out on a certain sort of journey. Uh, This morning, Jesus is uh, going to help us to consider what it really means to come with him on the road of discipleship. Uh, Jesus is going to make sure that there are no hidden costs on this endeavor, that we know fully all the dangers that might befall us, so that we can carefully consider if we can afford to pick up our own crosses and follow him. And yet there's no other way to be a Christian, as we'll see. If we're not willing to make the sacrifices, we will be of no use to the kingdom of God and to King King Jesus himself. Uh, This morning I have one main burden to convince you that each of us in our hearts would be ready to count the cost of our crosses so that we might be useful to Christ. I'll say it a second time. You must count the cost of your cross if you will be useful to Christ. Uh, We'll see that in three sections this morning in a sober and urgent message from Jesus. Well, those three sections will be three questions that we have to be able to answer before we're ready to follow Jesus as disciples. I'll give you those to you up front. First is, who do you love? Who do you love in 25 through 27? The second is, what can you afford? What can you afford in 28 through 33? And then finally, will you be useful in 34 through 35? In all this, I hope that you will count the cost of your cross so that you would follow Christ. Uh, Let's begin in that first section. Who do you love? Uh, It's been a while since we've been in Luke's gospel. We've taken a little bit of a break for the summer, so let me catch you back up to what's been happening. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have been on a road journey, heading somewhere, a specific destination, to the city of Jerusalem, where the cross of Calvary awaits Jesus. And all the things that we know of in the gospel must be accomplished so that sinners of all types might be saved. Uh, Since the moment Jesus revealed himself to his disciples as the Messiah, they have been on a journey that nothing can stop. And along the way, there have been encounters that they've been having. Some of them have been conversations along the road. Uh, Most recently, it has been in the form of a dinner party where Jesus stopped in and had, uh, had a meal as well as a revealing encounter with the religious elite of his day. Uh, Our passage now picks up back on the road. Verse 25 tells us, now great crowds were accompanying him. Uh, Jesus is once again in popular preacher mode with the crowds to prove it behind him. But Jesus is very different than 
those who try to build big platforms for themselves in the day and age when we live. When, they, when people get, start getting popular today, they have a tendency to try and keep their popularity. Not so with Jesus. Instead, he is going to challenge directly the hearts of those following the, him to the point where he is asking them to consider, do you know what you're signing up for if you want to become my disciple? Uh, look at how strong the language is as he speaks to them, starting in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What Jesus says is a hard saying for at least two reasons. Uh, one is culturally hard, even more so back then than it is today. Uh, he tells us that we have to hate those who are nearest and dearest to us. That's a hard thing for us to be told. I hope you love your spouse. I hope you love if you have a spouse. I hope you love your kids if you have kids. I hope you love your neighbors and your coworkers and all the people God's put in your life at varying degrees in appropriate ways. And yet Jesus says that we must hate those very people. Culturally, that's difficult right now. We don't like to think that we hate anyone. Uh, but back then, the bonds of family were of even greater importance. To be told that you had to hate your father and your mother and your spouse and your children was tantamount to saying you had to hate your own identity and your security and even your own future. It's a hard saying on the surface, just culturally. It's also a hard saying for another reason. Because on the surface, it seems like Jesus is saying something that is in flat-out contradiction to other things the Bible says, and even Jesus himself says. Right, think, for example, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Is it really honoring your father and mother to hate them? Or, or what about the call to love your neighbor? So we're supposed to love our neighbors but hate our family? That doesn't seem to make sense. So it's a difficult saying for multiple reasons. Down through the history of the church, people have wrestled with it. I think the best explanation is actually a pretty old one. It's that by hate, sometimes the Bible means something other than loathing. When we use the word hate, we, we mean of loathing. We, we despise someone. But in the Bible, often, at least in a few cases, hate is more comparative. It's a way of saying loving someone less than you love someone else. So think, for example, of Jacob with Leah and Rachel. Uh, the Bible says that he hated Leah and loved Rachel. Now, I don't think that's supposed to mean that he loathed Leah, but obviously that he loved her less than he loved Rachel. So it is what Jesus is calling each of his disciples to consider and count the cost of what it takes to truly follow after him. It requires that there be only one true love in our hearts. There's only room for one person to be the center of our affections. And according to Jesus, that person has to be him. That means everyone else in our lives, even those who are nearest and dearest, even those who we love the most in an earthly sense, they must come in second when it comes 
to the rankings of our loves. Uh, Jesus phrases this in such a forceful way because, frankly, this is one of the scandals of the gospel itself. That there is a claim that Jesus would have on our lives that would transcend tribes and traditions and blood and kin. And even the marital bonds of the relationship between husband and wife and parent and child. That Jesus must be first. Remember being in Lebanon years ago and sitting with a family that had had to uh, experience much suffering because they had chosen to love Jesus first and foremost in their heart. Uh, They were from a people group that was not native to Lebanon. They had moved there. Uh, which meant that most of their neighbors were different from them in this, that they were Christians and the people around them were Muslims. As a result, very quickly, it became obvious that they had a choice. Either they maintained their devotion and love for Jesus as first in their life, or they received love and affection and acceptance from their neighbors. So they did the hard thing, and they chose to love Christ, even when it would cost them something. And that resulted in some very hard things. Their kids quickly found that the other children they had befriended had wanted nothing to do with them. Uh, Even the teachers in the school their children were going to would encourage the other children to antagonize their son. Even worse, they experienced family rejection. When they became Christians, it meant basically leaving behind all the people that they loved dearly. And yet they told me this story, and they did so with great joy, not a grimace on their face. Because when Jesus is the first love in our hearts, even if it means leaving behind so much, what we gain is so much greater. The true love, the true desire of our hearts. Uh, Jesus says, first off, that we have to be ready to leave behind even those relational bonds that we love so much for the best relationship of all, the one we have with him. The second part of what he says gets even more personal. No longer is it about the relationships we lose, but our own life that we might lose. Do you notice that last phrase in that uh, last verse that we read there? Even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Within the bounds of what Jesus is saying here is even losing your life. He he adds some more color to it in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. While I was in Prophetstown, we went to a, uh, a settler's town where they build things with period tools and period buildings, all sorts of things like that. Very interesting. Uh, One spot that I was drawn to was the forge master, basically a blacksmith making things out of iron and with a hammer and uh, anvil and all the rest. And so I walked up to the forge master and immediately noticed that he had a series of crosses available to be purchased uh, that he had made himself. And I thought to myself, oh, that's so typical. Uh, We use crosses as ornaments and as uh, tattoos of self-expression, a vaguely religious but very personal thing. It's not unusual for people to think of crosses that way. Uh, So as I was having all those thoughts, the forge master started talking with me, and he picked up a nail about six inches long. 
He said, uh, do you know what this is? I said, no, I don't. He had a little gleam in his eye as he said it. He said, uh, uh, some archaeologists found a heel bone that had one of these driven through it. Uh, it turns out this is the type of nail that they used when they crucified someone. So if you know about Jesus in the Bible being crucified, this is what would have gone through his hands and his feet. And I immediately repented of my assumptions of the brother. And I, in a fresh way, as I held that heavy iron, counted the cost of the cross that Jesus bore. Now Jesus tells us that if we are to be his disciples, we need to be ready to pick up our own cross and follow him. That's not just a way of saying that we need to be willing to have some difficult things like health complications, though we do need to do that as well. Now, to someone back then, to pick up your cross and follow him is an invitation to a death march. It's saying, come follow me on my way to the agonizing, painful place of death. Uh, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, it's what the house churches in China for decades now have called the way of the cross. Uh, not shrinking back from persecution when it comes. Not losing heart when people intentionally try and intimidate you. And yes, having enough conviction that if it, the Lord calls you to it, that you're willing to lay down your own life for the one who laid down his life for you. Now, dear brothers and sisters, I cannot preach this passage without asking the question, are you willing to die for him? Now, it's true, living when and where we do, most of us will not be asked that specific question uh, in all likelihood. Most of us will not die as martyrs. And yet all of us need to count the cost of the reality that we might be asked to do that. Are you ready to lay down your life for Jesus? Would you be willing to love him so much that you would not even love your earthly life continuing more than you would love your witness for his sacrifice on your behalf? For many, this is not a hypothetical question. Our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world must answer that question in very real terms. Uh, kids, maybe you're familiar with that story, Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. Uh, Christian has to make all sorts of sacrifices to follow Jesus. The first of them is leaving behind his family, his wife and children. They won't come with him on the path through the narrow gate. But he is after something far greater, that celestial city and the king of it, Jesus. So he does not shrink back, even when it costs him the things most dear to him, and even at the final moment, when it costs him his very life as he crosses that dark river. Are you willing to die for Jesus? It's a question every Christian needs to be willing to answer. I do think there's also an application here about not just the ultimate sense of physical death, but all the smaller deaths that we die daily as disciples of Jesus. Are you crucifying the sinful flesh? Are you crucifying your desires? Are you allowing Jesus to be the one that determines what you do in your life and how you steward all that he's given you? Or are you living for yourself? 
You can't follow Jesus until you've counted the cost of the need to surrender all to him. Uh, So when that moment comes where you have to speak up as a bold witness in the office, and you know it's going to put you on the outside of the water cooler conversation, are you ready to die that little death so that you could have the joy of the life, eternal life in Jesus in your heart? Or, Or parents, when you have to die to yourself to disciple your kids and invest in their lives while they're in your home, are you willing to sacrifice all the other things that you would rather be doing, even feel justified in doing, in order to be faithful in this moment. Or students, you're about to go back to school. Uh, With that's going to come a whole different set of peer pressure and relationships and opportunities to choose yourself and the desires of this world over your love of Jesus. Would you make up your mind right now? You're willing to give up anything anything if it means you'll have more joy in Jesus. Because let's remember the one who's calling us to pick up our cross and follow him is the one who already bore that cross himself. And he did it for our joy in our eternal life. And so that we could have peace in our hearts when we pick up our crosses and follow him. That first challenge from Jesus cuts straight to the heart. The second one, though, shifts more to the mind. Uh, for the more analytically minded and the accountants among us, you'll appreciate this second uh, section, verses 28 through 33. What can you afford? What can you afford? Uh, back in 1820, there was a building project with very good reasons for a very good cause. It's called the National Monument to Scotland. It was a monument for soldiers who had died in a particular war, and it was meant to show the honor that is due to those who have made such sacrifice. Uh, It was going to be marble and uh, built to resemble the Greek Parthenon, uh, beautiful pillars and grand in its design. Only one problem. Uh, They didn't count the cost of what it would take to afford such a structure. They raised some of the money and figured they would raise the rest later, and they started building. And what they ended up with is what is now referred to as Edinburgh's Folly. It's just a foundation and a few pillars, an uncompleted structure, and a monument to what happens when you fail to count the cost. Jesus is going to use an analogy very similar to that uh, as a part of a two-part parable lesson to ask us if we can afford to be his disciples. See, pick it up in verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first uh, sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Uh, The details of the parable are easy enough to understand. Someone is desiring to build a tower of some sort. Maybe it's a defensive structure. Uh, Maybe it's just a really cool thing to have attached to your house. I don't know. Um, It's some sort of a tower. But what they will not do 
is they will not start the construction process until they've done the work to figure out how much is this going to cost and am I going to have enough to finish it? Why? What's the motivation for them not to do such a foolish thing? Well, did you notice it was shame? It is that people will see the half-built tower and think that was a half-brained idea this person had and the shame of failure would motivate someone never to put themselves in that position. Now, Jesus is surely not just interested in giving us good advice for building projects. As with all of his parables, there is a spiritual purpose behind this. And the theme of this passage makes clear what he is talking about. We need to ask and take inventory of our hearts whether we can afford the costs of what it takes to get on the road of discipleship and come follow him. See, salvation that comes through Jesus is free. But the life of a disciple will cost you everything. There's no limit on what Jesus can ask you for. Everything from all that you own to your life itself. Now, Jesus doesn't want to hide any of those costs. He wants to make sure that we know exactly what they are. So he tells us ahead of time, make sure you're ready to pay the price. Uh, the second parable complements the first. Uh, no longer is it about a building project, now it's about a big battle that's about to happen. Uh, read with me in verse 30, uh, sorry, 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. At first glance, I had, the way I'd always read this up until this week was that this is essentially a restatement, just in a different setting, of the first parable, that they're both basically measure twice, cut once. Make sure you can afford it before you start it. This time it's a king contemplating fighting a battle, and he's going to count to make sure he has enough soldiers and making sure that his force is big enough and strong enough to deal with the other force that he might fight. But the more I've read the parable over the last week, the more I've been convinced that it complements the first, but actually is the inverse of it. A couple of details lead me to that conclusion. It's not just a king contemplating going out to start a battle. It's a king who is being confronted by another king coming to battle him. That is, this king is on the defensive. He sees this army approaching, and that's when he does the calculation. And that means the choice is not between fight or don't fight. The choice is between fight or surrender. Now, you see what this does to the parable? It's not asking can you afford to be a disciple of Jesus? And no, no, it's asking the opposite. Can you afford not to be a disciple of Jesus? One of the themes that's been running through Luke's gospel has been this theme of the coming judgment. Uh, there's a day, none of us knows when it comes, but each day we're one day closer. A day of the holy justice of the kingdom of God coming to this earth. On that day, King Jesus will return with the armies of heaven at his back. 
On that day, all those who have chosen not to come after him as disciples will find Jesus to be their enemy. They'll have to pay a different sort of cost, the cost of their sins under the wrath of God in the day of judgment. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is something that you so desperately need to understand. You really only have two options. One way or another, you will incur a cost. It's just which cost you want to choose. On one hand, you can choose to avoid the cost of being a disciple. You can have for yourself a life of comfort and relative ease. You can avoid people thinking that you're odd because you're a Christian. Uh, You can avoid all the strictures and limitations that comes from submitting your life and surrendering all to Jesus. You can avoid that cost. That's true. But if you do that, then one day, on this day of judgment coming, you will pay a different cost, uh, the just penalty of your sins. And friend, that is a cost that none of us can afford to pay. According to the Bible, the wages of even one sin is death. And the wages of a life full of sin? I tremble to even try to describe it. It's an unending agony under the righteous judgment of God in hell. The Bible's clear about this, that none of us will find ourselves able to avoid that payment. That is, if we avoid the cost of coming on the road of discipleship after Jesus right now. That's why it's so important that you instead do the second thing. That is, incur the cost of following Jesus so that you let him pay the cost, the penalty of your sins. See, the message of the Bible is what God that would rightfully punish us did instead of uh, punishing all of us, is he sent his own son, Jesus, to pay the penalty our sins deserved. That's what the cross of Jesus is all about. As his love ran red, as he died on the cross of Calvary, he paid the penalty our sins deserved. God put our sins on Jesus and punished him in our place. All we have to do is repent of our sins and trust him by faith. If we do that, we'll never experience the wrath of God. Instead, we'll experience an ending joy and life and adoption into the very family of God. But friend, you must choose. So ask yourself the question, Can you afford not to follow Jesus? Now, for all of us here this morning that are Christians, we need to realize that even as we have already made the decision to follow Jesus, it's right for us to remind ourselves of the cost that we have already willingly undertaken. Uh, Yes, it is a true sacrifice. Uh, Yes, it is something that we will feel and even at times lament. And yet, it's worth it. Because it's the road that allows us to be with Jesus and to experience all that he would have for us, including unending joy and peace. Ask yourself, are you willing to renounce everything you have? If you know that was the price, would you be willing to do that for the sake of Jesus? That's exactly the way he puts it in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
Now, that's not exclusively talking about our earthly treasure, our money, and our stuff. But it's, not, it's certainly not talking about anything less than that. Jesus calls us to surrender all to him. Because that's the only way to be a useful and fruitful disciple for the crucified king. I ask you, have you counted that cost? Are you even finding joy as the payments come due? As you renounce your claim to some of your treasure, do you find yourself clinging more to the treasure that's laid up for you in heaven? As you experience sorrow and suffering because you stand up for Jesus, do you find yourself caring more about what God thinks about you than what the people of this earth do? Uh, Would you never lose your nerve? And would you never lose sight of what you will gain if you decide to pay this price in this life? Because what's waiting for you is joy and treasure in a home without end all in the kingdom of King Jesus. I pray that we would be the sort of people that would willingly and joyfully pay that price whenever those payments come due. Now, certainly, I think there's also an application for us as believers here for how we evangelize. I mean, if Jesus doesn't uh, shirk away from warning people who seem very interested in following him of the costs of what it will entail, then neither should we. We should take the time and even take the risk of telling people the truth while we are trying to introduce them to Jesus. Uh, Sooner or later, as you're talking with someone about the gospel, you will have to make a choice. Are you going to try and sell them on this? Or are you going to try and make sure that the costs are known up front? You know that car buying place, uh, CarMax? What are they known for? Uh, There's no hidden costs. You you walk up to a car and on the sticker there, all the taxes and fees and various other things of buying a car are all rolled into one number. So unlike all the other car buying places, you know exactly what it's going to cost you. Uh, That's how we should want to be when we are introducing people to Jesus. We're not hiding anything because we're trusting that Jesus is worth the sacrifice Yes, it will be hard. Yes, it will be a sort of living death day after day. And yet what you gain is all worth it. Tell people to get on the road of discipleship, to pick up their cross and follow Jesus. Well, the last point has nothing to do with the the first two in the sense that it's not about the nature of our loves in our heart or even about the analytical of what we can afford. It's instead a warning. What happens if we don't do this? Brings us to our third and final point. Question for each of us to answer. Will you be useful? Will you be useful? Jesus has a saying that's familiar. It's found in a few of the other gospels, but he's using it a particular way here. I'll read it for you, 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I once did a project with some junior high students. Uh, One of my leaders had this idea. 
let's build this carpet ball table for them. This will be a lot of fun. And we'll even let the students help us. We'll get the sanders and the saws and everything, and we'll let these 7th and 8th graders have some blood in the game, build this carpet ball table. And I'm not handy, if you haven't picked that up from other sermon illustrations. Um, I, I joke that I put my blood, sweat, and tears into every project. Uh, that's not because of devotion. It's because I'm clumsy and not good with tools. So we get into this project, and this leader has a vision for what's going to happen. Uh, he's directing traffic, and he's saying, you over here, you do this, you do this. And at first, it was cool. I was watching it all happen, and I tried to help. And, but I realized I didn't know what I was doing. And I was just getting in the way. And so after a while, I was just awkwardly standing off to the side, completely useless, watching people put this thing together. And frankly, it was just not a good feeling. Like, none of us like that feeling of being not useful for a particular task we think is important. Certainly that's true in our service to Jesus. It's a joy, as you heard last week in Eric's sermon, it's a joy to use the very gifts that God gives the body to find your place to serve Jesus in the church. None of us wants to be unfruitful and unuseful. And yet the warning of Jesus is that's precisely what can happen if we won't count the cost of picking up our own cross. Use this example of salt. Says that salt that loses its taste is useless. That's a little confusing for us today because we have pure salt and strictly speaking, sodium chloride, it's stable. It, you, it doesn't ever lose its salty properties. Uh, but the salt they had back then was different. It wasn't pure. It was made from evaporated uh, salt water usually. And that meant that it was mixed with all sorts of other minerals and stuff. And so as you used it or handled it or allowed it to get wet and then dry out, uh, over time, the actual sodium chloride salt could evaporate or be lost. And what you'd left, be left with is something that looked like the salt that you found useful for eating, for your crops and your garden and everything. But in fact, it's useless. It's got no salt properties left. Uh, Jesus says, if you won't count the cost of your cross, that you'll be like that. You will be useless for the kingdom's purpose. Brothers and sisters, none of us wants that to be true of our hearts Certainly, we don't want that to be the final assessment of Jesus when we meet him on the day of judgment. Now, it's helpful to realize that what's required to be useful here is not merit on our, fact, on our part or talent, but willingness. When we come to Jesus with empty hands, willing to let go of all the things of this world, and to cling to the cross, then Jesus, out of the overflow of his grace, he supplies all that we need to be useful. For some, that will be preaching sermons like this one or teaching down in our children's classrooms. For others, it'll be encouraging others or standing up as a bold witness or, yes, even enduring persecution and showing people a lived-out example of the crucified life following after the crucified Savior. So brothers and sisters, would you count the cost of your cross? Uh, would you say that I surrender all to Jesus, the crucified king who gave all for you? Would you know you'll gain so much more than you've lost? 
you'll even gain the joy of being useful for your Savior and your Master in his kingdom. While I was on vacation, I'll close with this, I had an opportunity to read a book called Faithful Disobedience. Um, it's a collection of writings by Chinese pastors and gospel workers who have been enduring all sorts of persecution over the last several decades particularly. Uh, most of it centered around one pastor, a pastor by the name of Yong Wei. Uh, he was arrested back in 2018 and has been imprisoned ever since for daring to defy the communist authorities and to speak boldly about the need for repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, the book has a number of his writings, most of them centered around this idea, the way of the cross, that the Chinese Christians have learned so experientially over the last decades. Uh, in one of the writings, it was a sermon he wrote. He had just been arrested for a short period of time and released and he was able to be back at his church for that Sunday and preach. And his sermon is amazing to read. I mean, it, it's faithful and all the things you would expect of a sermon. But he also keeps breaking into these prayers to God in the midst of it. You can tell they're just so heartfelt and emotive. I want to read the words of one of those outbursts of prayer. As, so that we can ourselves count the cost of our cross so we be useful to Jesus. Lord, fill my heart with your love. Lord, fill my mind with your truth. My eyes are full of tears because of your saving grace. Lord, fill my mouth with praise. Make my two hands serve humbly, just like you. I deeply wish the marks of Jesus remain in my whole life. The way of the cross the way of the martyrs. What a blessed way this is. Lord, I want to follow the footsteps of Jesus. Lord, make me your pure bride. With victory over all temptations, difficulties, and mockeries, I gladly offer my life to you. Would we count our own cost of our own cross and be willing to surrender all to follow Jesus. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would that, the words to that beloved song ring true in our hearts now? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. By your grace, would you help us to count again the cost of our cross as we follow you, our crucified Lord and Savior and friend. Use us for your purpose, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.